The question is <clears throat> about working with thoughts of the future, especially seeing through the concept of future. <clears throat> One of the ways we can see through the concept of future is by seeing that thought of future just as a thought in the present moment. <laughs> and so um, this is what breaks down the whole sense of past and future, is being able to observe thought in the present moment and see how we create past and future in the present moment through the thought process. <clears throat> so, um, I mean, any planning thought, anything, I'm going to talk to my friend, you know, in <laughs> two months from now. Uh, if you believe the content of that thought in that moment, you've created a future. Whereas if you see that thought just as a thought in the present moment, uh, In a way, it's important to keep this very simple. It's easy for us to make things very complicated because we're trained that way. You know, the conceptual thought is what makes life very complicated, and the the mindfulness uh, allows us to to be very simple. So that that ability to see a thought just as a thought sounds very simple. And it is very simple, but it's incredibly difficult to maintain. You know, we might do it once, you know, but to be able to maintain that simplicity is why we pra- we practice. You know, so that very, um, you know, it can be very piercing mindfulness that can see through past and future. It requires this incredible presence of mind in the present moment to see the content of thinking is what creates this, it creates the whole world actually, not just past and future. It's like um, looking at a watch. If you just look at the, at the color and the shape, <laughs> You know, there's no time. And if you look at a person and you just see color, you know, it's it's just to be able to... There's a subtlety in the mindfulness as you go through the longer retreats. And so, like, what can happen is the mindfulness can get stronger moment by moment. And if you can really see in a moment, it's just like seeing. If you, in that moment, you just see color, you don't see a person. You might, you might, in two moments from that moment of seeing the color, create a person out of seeing. But in that moment of pure seeing, um, it's just that, it's just seeing. You know, so, so with every sense door, whether it's thinking or seeing or smelling or tasting or touching, we can see that we create, you know, the whole world. 
And that's what we're practicing, is we're practicing to see how the world is created. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few quick questions. Um, does the Dharma energy ever come in through the bloodstream and into the cells, or is it just little dials and switches in the brain? And uh, the other one was you were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Can we do one at a time? <laughs> How about one at a time? I'll do that question and then we'll do the okay, yeah. Um. <laughs> the question is, is the Dharma energy come into the bloodstream in the cells of the body or is it just these little switches and dials in the brain? Uh. <laughs> the mindfulness goes very deep, you know, so it's not just these little dials in the brain, it's, there will be moments where you might notice that an emotion surfaces, and you won't have any idea what it is. There's no content in the mind with it in thought. It's just maybe a deep sadness arises and passes. That's cellular. It's in the blood. It's cellular. There'll be things that surface, whether it's physical pain, or emotional pain, mental pain. There's a lot of purification happening that's cellular and, and coming from past lives as well as this life. And so it's very deep. Yeah. My other question was concerning you. You said you, um, you had a young person's retreat and, and you were talking to the young person who said you didn't want to live. Mm-hmm. Well, and then we were talking about shock, shock absorbers, and the reason they didn't want to live because life was changing, changing, changing. And then I was thinking about shock absorbers, and my question is, what happens if, like, that person's aunt said, you know, um, I'm going to give you 32 of my properties in Hawaii, um, and I want, want you to learn how to manage them, once you manage them, I'm going to give them to you. Would that act as a shock absorber and help that person to want to live? And Mm-hmm. It's a shock of, of change. Hmm. It could. <laughs> 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 it could make it worse. <laughs> to to get thirty two properties at seventeen years old could be overwhelming. You know, I mean. I think that often at 17 or 18, it's, it's like a spiritual crisis. We're usually leaving home, and it's a huge rite of passage. And it's kind of natural at that age to go through that feeling of not wanting to live. Uh, it's that existential angst uh, that brings us to retreat. So in many ways, he was just very honest and open uh, with what was going on with him. Uh, And I think that he really faced it. I think that facing it was the shock absorber at that point in his life. The the shock absorber is really understanding. Does this Dharma energy come bottled? Bottled. 
The medicine is mindfulness. <laughs> Otherwise, we'd have a product we could sell. <laughs> One of the wonderful things about being an aversion type is is that it's the easiest to develop discriminating wisdom if you're that type. I mean, (laughs) we all have aversion, so there's hope for us all. But if you... (laughs) In Steve's talk last night, you could hear that shift from aversion to discriminating wisdom. Uh, It's because there's this... um, With an aversion type, they're, they're (laughs) they're usually judging and discriminating about things. Oh, I don't like that. <laughs> like that. That's yucky. That it's this, you know, constant kind of discriminating. But it's not discriminating really as appropriately. It's not bringing about understanding necessarily. So, discriminating wisdom is when we we bring investigation, we bring that kind of piercing investigation to what's happening in the present moment. So, for example, say loneliness is happening. Uh, If it's unpleasant, uh, an aversive reaction would be just to react to that and try to push it away. So that it might be that one notices the loneliness with the aversion, one's aware of it, Uh, But one doesn't use that experience to develop understanding. It's possible, see, in any moment, it's it's possible to use investigation to help us develop understanding, or we react. You know, basically there's reactiveness or the the development of understanding. Uh, So that's how discriminating wisdom happens, is being able to take whatever's happening in the moment and look at it and then bring the attention very closely to it so that we know it. There's a difference between seeing something and then knowing it intuitively. We, we need both. We need the, the ability to recognize what's happening, bringing the attention deeply into it, knowing it intuitively so that we really deeply understand it. Yeah. hmm Exactly. It's and to see that it's it's the content of that thought isn't true. It's when we believe the content of that thought that then we'd be worried that we would act on it. You know, there's fear. If you try to talk somebody into living or or not into living, either one of those is a reaction. And it's 
of believing the thought that gets us into all the trouble. So if we're able to have this discriminating wisdom where we see that it's just a thought, we're no longer afraid of hopelessness. You know, it's just another landscape. It's okay to experience it. It's when we believe it that we can't experience it and we give it more and more power. Where, you know, the more we're afraid of something, the more there's the capacity to get drowning in it. Um, so yes, what we do is we take that piercing investigation where we see, oh, this is just hopelessness. It's not, it's not a problem. It's just an experience one can experience, which is, you know, in Arahant, supposedly someone fully enlightened neither wants to live nor doesn't want to live. There's no attachment to existence, and there's no attachment to non-existence. So that's a very non-reactive way. <laughs> and, and that's really... Uh-huh. It's true. <laughs> Yeah, we want, there's, that's why we practice, we want to be free. And that's a really wholesome desire. Good questions. <laughs> Enjoy the day. Mm. and um, what they represent, and how some of them seem very alike. Uh, One thing that's important to realize is that you can't totally isolate any one element. Just take a drop of water, which obviously has the water element in that it's either fluid, flowing, or cohesive, water drop. uh, It has a temperature of some sort. It has... um, um, uh, vibration or support in order for it to be held together and it's hard or soft. You can do that with just about any element. So in the body often you feel things um, uh, in combination. Particularly you asked about uh, the fluidity of the water element as opposed to like a wave of vibration. Well there you actually get both. The wave part is the fluid part, the water element, whereas the vibration part of the wave is the uh, air element, you see. And um, uh, actually, you can't experience the water element directly. You experience it only in combination with something else. I mean, for example, even putting our hand into the water, we don't directly experience water. We experience uh, coolness or heat or softness, or hardness. The way we experience the water element, for example, in the body is um, a, uh, a mass of heat. The mass part is the, is the cohesive part in the heat, the fire element, or tension in the body, tightness. It could be the, uh, uh, the pressure or support of the air element, uh, as well as the uh, cohesive part of the water element. And the other ones, uh, uh, um, again, earth element is the texture of things. Soft, 
hard, smooth, silky, pebbly, sandpapery. Um, and the air element, again, oscillation, movement, vibration, or the supporting part of the air element. You think of wind in a sail, or air in a balloon. That's, what, uh, that's how we can, when we're alive, how our bodies fill out, how we can stand, sit, move, walk, and so forth. Um, and I think I spoke about the other ones enough. Subtle shift from what to what? It's, it's uh, my my sensitivity to that is that there's sort of a natural um, evolving of awareness, wherein I don't really try to do one or the other. I find that the mind inclines toward one or the other in the course of the maturity of the, of the factors of energy and concentration and joy and calm and so forth. So that at times the awareness does indeed incline to see to the objects as they appear, a sound, a sensation, and it notices. It's the awareness of those appearing um, sounds, sights, sensations, and so forth. At other times, it, the mind seems to uh, be more anchored in the, uh, an awareness, a choiceless awareness, wherein objects appear, but there's more the groundedness in the awareness. You see, and then it, and, and often in that groundedness in the awareness, and that's not so much looking for the awareness as of just the awareness of of knowing happening, the awareness of awareness happening. It's turned back on itself a bit. It's not that it ignores objects, but it's as if objects appear in more this sphere of awareness. In that, in that mode, often we begin to notice the nature of things, as opposed to the things themselves begin to notice more the lawful nature of things, how they arise and pass, or sometimes we see only their arising or only their passing, or sometimes we see their duration more. But we notice these patterns. Or we see them as, as empty of self. Or we see them as insecure, as nothing that we can, you know, put our refuge of security into and so forth. So, you know, I'm, I don't recommend trying anything in particular. Just being, just seeing what is the bent of the mind at the time. Is it in? Does it feel more in attunement to be with the, to be anchored in the awareness of experience, or noticing more the experience? In both cases, it's just a slight shift. Okay. Yeah. Noting aversion, aversion? Yeah. 
What about skinhead and punk? Met is okay. Through really just letting it be there, really just feeling it, being okay with aversion. There's, there's a subtle difference between uh, the identification where you know, we become the aversion and, uh, and the allowing of it to be there. Very often, and I'm not sure this is the case for you, what's preventing that sense of acceptance, because then it's, it's sort of a natural rolling along. You know, once we recognize there's, there's aversion, and then the acceptance of it. And in the acceptance, to, uh, the opposite of acceptance is resisting what's there, not wanting what's there to be there, or wanting something else to be there or being afraid to open to it, and so forth. So very often, the thing to do is really to open to the resistance, which might be more of a, a subtler aversion to the aversion, or a subtler state that isn't so apparent, it's more of a hidden object, to work with that. Because something happens when you're really able to open to the aversion. It, and what happens is that it just it's okay that it's there. And when, it's, when it doesn't feel okay to be there, that's usually a flag that there is the resistance to it. Once it feels okay, then quite naturally we just begin to, the awareness is, investigates. How does the awareness feel? What's the tone of it or texture in the mind? What, where in the body are there sensations that are physical correlates to that aversion? And as we just investigate, very naturally, the mind begins to disidentify. You don't try to disidentify, because usually that's an identified thought that's trying as well. So it's more a process of recognizing that it's there and sensing if there's, if there's like a magnetic push away from it, which would indicate a resistance, trying to open to that resistance. The thoughts are okay. It's okay to have mean, nasty thoughts. It's not bad. They're just thoughts. It's really all right to let the thoughts come up. Very often, underneath that comes more emotions that maybe one that we're not feeling, maybe one of the emotions that is itself the resistance. It's okay to have those thoughts. If you feel overwhelmed, it's also okay to back off and then Yes, you could go sit someplace and do metta, or the compassion that was introduced sometimes. You could feel the pain of those mean, nasty thoughts or the aversion and use that as the focus of your compassion. I care about 
this pain, care about my pain. That's fine. Um, on compassion, is there anything in the teachings that we would address the euthanasia and abortion? Who came up for me with Dr. Death at the time that didn't have lines about it? Hmm. I mean, he's willing to go to prison mm -hmm. for somebody asking for assistance. Is that his conviction changed? If I listen to him, I feel a compassionate man. Mm -hmm. Right. 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 Questions about teachings and uh, abortion and euthanasia. Um, it's a real difficult. It's not a black and white thing at all. And like you say, he was mentioning um, Doctor Death, a person who helps people exit when they want to exit, and that uh, listening to him, he, he feels the compassion from this man. Uh, and that makes that makes sense to me. I mean, I think uh, he's he has a conviction. I, I don't know. I don't have the same familiarity with him that you do, but I I could see that possibility. The teachings say explicitly, you know, that killing's killing, and that there that any intentional act has a has a karmic fruit. Um, to the degree that the motivation is very different than anger uh, or aversion, then I think that has a powerful effect on the results. So, uh, I mean, our teacher is quite strong against those things, and for example, and just feels that someone should stay conscious every moment. And I can see that side too, that up to the very last moment, no matter how painful or how much suffering, that there's a preciousness of the moment-to-moment -moment life. Uh, but also, I personally don't demonize the other side. I think it's something very personal and something that some, all of us, each of us, has to come into a willingness to, uh, to do, you know, sort of above right and wrong, what we're ready for. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Mm -hmm. um, what are you saying that Paul, uh, that that good feeling that you had for those days of the week was really just somehow uh, vapor from Dante's Inferno? Inferno and that <laughs> 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 I hope not. <laughs> Yeah. See, um, the dukkha was not a feeling. It was not. Uh, it's not as if it turned from joyous, blissful feelings suddenly into painful feelings. It's more that there was an insight that all experience, including pleasant, is uh, is all is passing away, and doesn't provide the security that I had thought was there, in which was became the foundation, the underpinning for attachment to that pleasant feeling. So the, the, the dukkha was just seeing the insecurity of all phenomena, 
It didn't make me uh, duked out. <laughs> That's the point was the attachment to the good feeling, as opposed to seeing. There is a way of seeing all things as dukkha. Uh, and that insight, very insight, bringing joy. Different than pleasant feeling, bringing joy. Because it's very liberating. When we see, have such an insight, there's a letting go in the mind, you see. A very letting go of trying to hold on to things. Okay. Hmm. say. <laughs> but uh, the, the, the jatakas uh, were recorded in, um, in commentarial texts some centuries, as all the teachings were. Uh, uh, and there's evidence, a strong evidence, both in the jatakas and in the suttas, that many of them were illustrations, parables, spoken by the Buddha. Um, uh, during his time, about his former lives, over eons, eons of lives in developing the bodhisattva qualities. Jataka means birth. So Jataka tales are stories about birth. And they're really stories, in my view, about all of us. Uh, all of us as bodhisattvas, uh, uh, to me, they create a certain space, a powerful mythic space, in which transmissions of teachings occur, which is how I'm quite confident is how the Buddha used them himself, himself, when he gave illustrations and all the characters in the stories, all the animals and so forth, uh, as, as you, most of you can feel, they, they represent, they, they quicken something within us, they stir it inside so that we're at that time that, uh, the ox or we're the, the person unkind to the ox and so forth. And they, they often bypass, in my view, the intellect and go right to the heart in this transmission of, of, of teaching. Sometimes we don't even know it, and that's how it happens. So I think it's much more than just what it seems like, tales that were you know, an addendum some centuries and centuries later. I think they brought the teachings to life, and I think they still do. And I think we have to start uh, our interviews now. Have a good day.
I can't hear your question too good. Could you speak up just a little bit? The question is, when something arises, some experience arises, then there is a reaction to it. It may be aversion, it may be attachment, it may be envy, it may be jealousy or shame or whatever the reaction. The question is, okay, okay. The question is about accepting. Okay, the question is about accepting what we are becoming aware of or become aware of. Accepting uh, in the sense of acknowledging the fact of its existence, not accepting in the sense of it's okay and I like it, I accept it. It's more the acceptance of acknowledging that it's present, And if there is a strong, uh, reactive relationship to an experience like aversion, recognizing that aversion is taking place is the first step. And if we can recognize it without reaction, then that really is the acknowledging acceptance of it. Then we can just be with that. We can be with that uh, reaction of aversion. And we can notice its unfolding as it happens. Physical and mental stuff. The commentary in the mind, the self-righteousness, the tightness in the body, the heat in the body, whatever, whatever uh, is associated with that reactive mind, we can notice it. If the reaction is particularly strong, we might stop, stop doing insight practice, which is the noticing of the mental and physical arising things, and do a, uh, a reflective meditation or do a replacement meditation. Reflective being can reflect on the virtues of patience in the face of something that makes you very angry or impatient. That's a reflective type of uh, way of dealing with a strong emotion. Or a replacement meditation is practicing loving-kindness towards someone who provokes a lot of uh, aversion. So, depending on the strength of the emotional reaction, and depending on the strength of your energy, concentration, tranquility, etc., first choice is to practice insight, noticing and noting 
the mental and physical things as they arise. And if one is feeling overwhelmed because of the strength of the reaction or the weakness of one's own energy and insight, then you can try another replacement or reflection. Briefly. But please understand that reflection or replacement is not insight. I wouldn't call it, I wouldn't call noticing an act of will. There may, you may have to do a, uh, what does somebody call it? Somebody that reports to me says uh, that when they get confronted with things, that they have a, uh, kind of a little mantra that comes along with acknowledging it, like, it's okay. So in that sense, we might have to have an attitude, or we might uh, cultivate an attitude of, it's okay. Okay? Thinking, aversion, whatever, whatever, it's okay. And in that okayness, we soften our, um, re- the potential reactive mind. It's like, okay, I see Envy, jealousy, thinking, planning, fear, whatever. It's okay. Can use something like that as a... something to, um, that accompanies your mindfulness, accompanies your um, acknowledgement or recognition of the experience. I think it's going to depend on your clarity of mind and energy. Sometimes you're going to find yourself in a reactive state of mind, and you're not going to remember anything that we've said here. You're just going to be reactive, and it's just like, and, you know, it's okay is not in your mind. Noting and acknowledging recognition, uh, acceptance, and disidentification is nowhere near consciousness. And you're just in a reactive mind. can't do anything about it. If you have the ability to recall anything that's been said, well, then you can try any of them as just a means. <laughs> no, just as a means to not be overwhelmed and lost when in whatever reactive state of mind you're in. Loneliness as opposed to what? This longing for connection with the universe that I'm talking about. I realize loneliness is not the same thing as this general wish for connection, but I'm 
loneliness, wishing for a connection. Two things come to mind. One is, I don't understand the question. And the other is, I don't have an opinion. So I think about that. And maybe I'll have an answer later. But it's a good question. How, what, what is Dharma energy? Yeah. Who used that term? It keeps coming up. <laughs> huh? Stephen. <laughs> Dharma energy. Well, I'm not sure what Stephen meant, but I'll tell you what I think Dharma energy is. We know what physical energy is. Physical energy is the ability to move our body around, to do what we want the body to do. If we're energetic, we can paint and draw and eat and plant bulbs, physical energy, plant bulbs, walk fast, etc. That's physical energy. Mental energy is the ability to move the mind around how we want it to, meditatively, spiritually. And that involves training the mind and moving the mind, directing the mind to connect with and to sustain your attention on the momentary arising experience. That's Dharma energy mental energy. It's got nothing to do with physical energy other than that they're associated. They're, they're quite different. So that mental energy is, has a lot of pieces to it. It's the determination in the mind. It's the mindfulness itself. It's the ability to connect and sustain. And when that ability to connect and sustain our attention is strong and has some momentum, then the continuity of mindfulness, the continuity of knowing one experience after the other, brings a lot of lightness to the mind. When the mind becomes light and agile and flexible, it just can be with what's happening. And there's a lot of joy and lightness, brightness in the mind. That's what I think real Dharma energy is. That fascinated interest, not willfully charged up, but as a result of continuity of attention to experience. And then when you get that rush of really being in the flow of experience and really being knowing it from the inside, because you're connecting, and the momentum of sustaining your attention on the experience is that present. Now, you don't have to worry about arousing energy at all. 
It's got a momentum of its own. It'll lift you right off the cushion. And that joy, that piti, um, is reflected. That piti in the mind is reflected in lightness of body, where the body feels very light, very uh, soft, very flexible, porous even. And you just can uh, float through the day. And the mind is as light floating lightly from one experience to the next. That's real Dharma energy. That's right. Yeah. Continuity. First, I want to say I, I, I don't necessarily think that someone experienced calm and tranquility is avoiding the dukkha of it, not necessarily. And let's not go looking for dukkha in any, in any you know, adventitious experience of calm and tranquility. No. If the calm and tranquility is not noted, there will be attachment to it. The end result of that attachment is going to be suffering. Because the next sitting when you come in, and that calm and tranquility isn't there, you're going to be frustrated, you're going to be disappointed, you're going to be uh, strive to get something, you're going to wonder what happened, what went wrong, what did I do wrong, solidifying a sense of I. And in that sense, because the tranquility and calmness was not noted, or the impermanence of it was not noted, uh, then you suffer. Then there is dukkha. So, in fact, there is in that calmness and tranquility, inherent in that experience, is dukkha, if it's not noted. If it's noted as and when it arises, and you're just with it, calm, 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 fine. When it's gone, no problem. Nine, time to uh, one note.